I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices? Thanks for tuning in. Our guest is Dr. Scott McLeod. Scott is an associate professor of educational leadership at the University of Colorado, Denver. He started off as a middle school social studies teacher before earning his JD and PhD. Scott is a leading expert in K-12 technology leadership issues. He shares his work through his wonderful website, blog, presentations, books, and countless, countless articles. Scott, thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing? Hey, Matt. Doing all right. Thanks. I mean, it is a pandemic, but otherwise doing okay. Thanks. So Scott, I just wanted to start off with something that uh, has jumped out to me as I've uh, been a fan of your work and reading through your introduction there. You have both your PhD and your JD. That's a lot of letters. How did that happen? Um, so I had a chance to get my master's paid for after getting my, um, teaching certificate as an undergrad Hmm. and, um, figured that the next step was probably leadership in some capacity. So I got my principal coursework as part of that master's and, uh, almost everywhere in the country, you have to take a school law course as part of principal licensure and realized very quickly that I absolutely loved the law. Hmm. Um, so after I had gone out and had taught, you know, middle school social studies for a couple of years and we were, my wife and I were coming back for final degrees, I looked for a place where I could do a PhD and a JD combined. Um, and somehow I ended up at the University of Iowa, where I balanced my PhD in educational administration with the law degree over at the College of Law. And it was awesome, particularly because I didn't have any pressure because I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> So if you didn't want to be a lawyer, how has that uh, JD been helpful in your current work or when you were uh, a classroom teacher? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first of all, just, you know, gravitating towards the law because of my sort of social studies interests was a natural. Um, So anything having to do with law, policy, government, uh, ethics, that kind of stuff plays out quite a bit. Um, I get to teach our school law course uh, and our school law courses in my uh, preparation programs where I'm preparing principals and superintendents. So that's really, really fun. Um, and then, you know, if you ever have to complain to a company and you get to put JD after your name, they are a little more responsive. How about that? <laughs> yeah, I like to write letters to uh, companies when I'm not happy. Um, so if I had a JD, I'd probably get more than just, a, you know, another box of chocolates. <laughs> right. 
I want to talk a bit about your most recent book, Harnessing Technology for Deeper Learning. What were, what were some of the motivations for writing that book? Uh, thanks for asking. Um, so my good friend, Julie Graber, uh, who's one of the smartest people I know in the state of Iowa about deeper learning and technology, um, she and I were working together, and Iowa had been part of this massive grassroots one-to-one movement where over the course of about five, six years, Iowa went from six districts giving kids computers to over 220 districts. Oh, wow. Um, so almost nobody to about two-thirds of the state. And Julie and I you know, realized that even after a district had been one-to-one for you know, three, four, five years, that we just weren't seeing the kind of learning transformations that they had hoped for. Um, and, and part of it is because they were using some frameworks that maybe weren't super useful to them in terms of moving the learning. Um, but also we were just looking for something that allowed us to have some different kind of conversations with teachers. So we ended up creating our own protocol, which has a lot of sort of concrete, specific look fors and think abouts. And that's really what the book is all about. The book introduces the four shifts protocol and the four shifts are really around deeper learning and student agency and authentic work. And then how to use technology to help with those. Um, and then so what the book does is that it outlines sort of our process about why we wrote the book and where we thought some gaps were in some other models and frameworks and tools. Then we redesign eight lessons together using the protocol and talk about how to use it across a variety of grade levels and subject areas. And then we finally, our last chapter is full of tips and suggestions and strategies and techniques for integrating the protocol into uh, individual teacher work, uh, curriculum redesign work, coaching work, principal leadership work, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I would love to uh, hear more about the uh, four shifts protocol. But before I do that, I do want to uh, ask sort of a general question. So as you're interacting with all of these uh, diverse schools uh, across the state, were there any similar missteps that schools and districts did when trying to integrate technology into the classroom? Yeah. And it's not just Iowa, of course, it's everywhere. And I think the, the first thing to recognize is that we have to have a vision for why we're getting the technology, right? So what uh, essential purposes are we trying to achieve as a system or organization so that it doesn't just become tech for tech's sake? You know, I recall vividly uh, doing a workshop with a um, middle school staff, teaching staff, that was getting ready to head one-to-one the following fall. And they grabbed me during a break when their leaders weren't around. And they said, Scott, I just want you to know that our principal has told us that he wants us to use the laptops three times a week next year. And I was like, cool, for what? And he's like, well, he doesn't care, just as long as it's three times a week. Um, <laughs> and, you know, sort of this classic tech for takes mentality and tech for tech mentality. And you get it, right? Like you want to show the return on investment to your community and you're using the machines. But there's no a pedagogical vision or learning vision driving that work. Then they're just machines that get used when somebody feels like it. And it all kind of fizzles apart. And, you know, another really bad reason to go one-to-one is because the neighboring district did and you don't want to lose kids to open enrollment. Um, that's another really terrible reason to go one-to-one. So you have to have sort of this driving vision of what kind of learning you're trying to make happen. And then I think, you know, even if you have those visions, then you struggle with implementation. How do we transform uh, an, an organization that was primarily analog in the past? And now we're giving all these kids and teachers machines and, you know, we got to ramp up people with training and vision and, and make it all work. And it falls apart in the implementation stage. 
Yeah, I would love to spend a little bit of time talking about, you know, the four shifts protocol, deeper learning, greater student agency, more authentic work, rich technology infusion. I just want to sort of dig into to these four components and sure. and talk about them and maybe have you, uh, you know, if you don't mind, give a couple examples. So we're thinking about deeper learning, right? Someone that doesn't know much about that. What does that look like in connection to integrating technology in, in the school? The whole concept of deeper learning is that we want to get kids beyond factual recall and procedural regurgitation. And we seem to have a lot of research that shows that somewhere around 80 to 85 percent of a kid's school day in most school systems, whether you're elementary through secondary, um, is sort of lower level learning. It's sort of the lowest levels of Bloom's taxonomy or Webb's depth of knowledge wheel. And so how do we elevate kids' cognitive complexity right, of the work? up to those higher levels of blooms or webs so that kids are being critical thinkers and problem solvers. They're working on those communication and collaboration skills we know they need. They're yeah. having an opportunity to be you know, creative and so on. But those things don't happen by magic, right? Like you have to design for them. And I think, you know, you think about the kind of technologies that teachers have easily gravitated to, and they are technologies that have mirrored the work they did before the technology existed. So for example, I used to lecture to my students with a chalkboard or whiteboard. Now I have this fancy $4,000 smart board that I can use to lecture at them. Um, I used to wield a VHS DVD laser disc player down the hall with a TV on the cart, right? And I used to show videos to my kids and now I can show videos to my kids using YouTube. Um, I used to have my kids fill out index cards or worksheets to check their understanding. Now we're using clickers or Kahoot to do the same work. And what we're doing here is that the technologies that are most easily adopted by teachers are the ones that reflect what they did before, but don't necessarily shift learning and teaching. Um, and so if we want deeper learning work, right, then we have to design for that sort of critical thinking and problem solving and collaborative work that we know our students also need to be doing. Um, and then figure out how do we use technology in those ways instead. Yeah, that's that's great. And I appreciate those examples as well. It, it makes it easy to understand instead of just this sort of big idea of deeper learning. You included greater student agency in there, and that's not something that's usually included in, in protocols like this. Can you explain the decision behind that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Kids are bored, right? Like kids come to school and they're bored with what they do. And a lot of it is because we tell them what to do almost every minute of every day up until they graduate high school. Um, the cognitive psychologists tell us that the number one factor in human motivation is autonomy. And for most students, schools are low autonomy environments. Yeah. Um, and so by giving kids agency, we do a number of different things. One is we stay true to our mission and vision statements about kids being lifelong learners, right? Like you can't become a lifelong learner if you never get a chance to direct your own learning. I mean, you just period, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, also, when we start giving kids agency, we see those engagement and motivation increases, you know, like the psychologist would tell us, because now, you know, you're having some direction over your own life and what you get to do and how and what you learn and so on. And it also allows us to individualize better, right? As soon as we start creating choice pathways or, you know, individualized inquiry pathways, um, we can individualize or personalize or differentiate for kids, which again, also helps with engagement and motivation because we're not shoving everybody into a one size fits all model. 
So that's why the agency section is in the protocol is we recognize that when we are less teacher directed or school system directed and we can allow learning to be controlled and owned more by, by students, that there's a lot of really powerful things that can happen there as we give them voice and choice and agency. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I'm, I'm super excited that you decided to, to sort of highlight that and give it a, a place of prominence within your Four Shifts protocol. Thinking about authentic work and rich technology infusion, would you be able to give an example of something uh, that does that well, a learning activity that just jumps off, oh, that demonstrates authentic work or that shows rich technology infusion, maybe just one or the other or possibly a combo? Yeah, absolutely. So the the idea behind authentic work is that we're getting kids out of the building um, physically or at least, you know, uh, electronically um, in some way where we're allowing kids to do the kind of real world work that's done in that discipline. Right. Not just the sort of isolated, disconnected work that happens in the classroom. So, um, you know, let's give you some examples here. Like there's this amazing um a high school program in Iowa called Iowa Big, B-I-G. And what they do is they're a complement to the local traditional mothership high schools. And kids spend half a day at Iowa Big and half a day at their neighborhood high school. And what's different is that, you know, in the traditional high school in their neighborhood, they're, you know, taking a couple classes, maybe some electives, an AP course, something like that. Then they head over to Iowa Big. And in Iowa Big, they work on projects that have been um, submitted to the school for student assistance um, from outside entities. There might be a local company, city and county agency, maybe a local you know nonprofit or something like that. And the kids work on real world challenges and projects, elbow to elbow and in partnership with the local you know company, for example. Um, so now all of a sudden, instead of sitting in an AP course, you know, reading through thirty pages of text and answering review questions, they're working side by side with you know, a company that's trying to create a, a drone to clean up plastic waste in local rivers and lakes. Um, or they're, you know, creating a documentary of, of somebody, or they're working on an advertising campaign, or they're um, creating utensils that can be used by amputees or whatever, right? Like these sort of like these authentic real world challenges and projects. And the technology is there to help with the collaboration right, with the outside partners, but it's also, you know, you fold in the tech as you need to, to do it. Like, for example, you're working on that drone, um, that, you know, aquatic drone, like, guess what? The drone itself is technological and there's a lot of technology involvement. You might be coding it or programming it or wiring it or whatever. Um, but also that drone doesn't work um, unless you understand the math and science necessary to make it go as well. So what we're doing is we're combining sort of those traditional academic subjects with real world hands-on applied work. And the technology piece is just, just like in the real world, right? We use it when we need it for the purposes that we need it for, but it's all very authentic and meaningful rather than kind of fakey. Um, and of course, what we see is whenever we get kids involved in real world meaningful tasks, that they immediately see the connection in what we're asking them to learn. And they see why they need to know the math, why they need to know the science, why they need to be good you know, uh, speakers and presenters, for example, for that documentary that they're working on or whatever. And so we're creating these applied domains for what students often see as disconnected learning skills in the classroom. And they stop asking us, why do I need to know this? Why do I care? What meaning or relevance does it have? Because they see it when they do the work. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Iowa Big for a lot of reasons, especially for their authentic 
work. It's a great, great example. Thanks for uh, pointing them out. Um, Scott, you recently wrote a blog post titled Designed for High Engagement This Fall. You made many profound statements, but there's something you said in there that stuck with me, and I want to ask you about it. You said, our families gave us grace in the spring when we did remote learning because it was an an emergency. If we squandered the summer by engaging in magical thinking about returning in person this fall instead of making the organizational investments that we needed to make, they're not going to give us the same grace again. That phrase, magical thinking, jumped off the page at me. What did you mean by that? Man, I've been interviewing school leaders since March about their responses to the pandemic. Um, I've got a whole Coronavirus Chronicles interview series on my blog. I think I'm up to 42 interviews now. And what's been fascinating to me is you can see some very clear differences between school systems that were reactive and school systems that were proactive. And I think, you know, as with all due respect to everybody in the spring, everybody was kind of in survival mode, right? Mm -hmm. And to be honest, a lot of the learning that was provided in most school systems was pretty blah, right? It was like, how quickly can we get out worksheet-like and homework packet-like stuff out to kids and that about all we can figure out at this stage. And that happened for a couple months. And like I said, families gave us grace because it was an emergency, but we have now had all summer to do something better or different. And I just see a whole lot of school systems who have just been sort of crossing their fingers and closing their eyes in some sort of willful blindness that, you know, despite the lack of precautions and protective equipment and extra funding and supportive policies and, you know, mask mandates and whatever in their community, they're still going to somehow be face to face in the fall. And so they could have spent all summer getting ready for what's very likely going to be uh, an entirely or almost entirely remote learning situation with kids like it was in the spring, but better. But instead, they've been figuring out all these logistics about how do we measure decks apart and what are we going to do with sanitizing, whatever. And then as the cases continue to surge around the U.S. and wherever, right, like they're reluctantly at the last minute at the end of July saying, okay, fine, all our wishes and hopes and dreams that we could be face-to-face are going away and we're going to be remote this fall, but they didn't do the prep work this summer to do it any better. Hmm. And that's what we would call magical thinking. So what are some organizational investments that should be made or you know, what do you, what do you think could be done to make it better? Uh, first of all, we should have spent an all summer figuring out the equity at, uh, angle around access, right? Which kids didn't have devices, which families didn't have enough devices. They've been sharing one. Um, how do we get better bandwidth out to low-income homes and so on, right? And I don't think most school districts have made a lot of great progress on that um, in terms of policy, in terms of devices, in terms of leaning on local telecoms, whatever it took to remediate that. Some have, but a lot haven't. Um, because again, they were playing on face-to-face, right? Um, And I think the other thing is really around training and pedagogy for staff, right? Um, How do we create um, community building and relationship building structures with families that were different from what we had in the spring? How do we help our teachers learn how to teach in online and blended ways that were more robust than worksheet and homework packets like we did in the spring? 
And that's where I think, you know, even now, like I see districts, they're like, oh, we trained our teachers in all these tools over the summer. So they have more tools in their toolbox. I'm like, that's not what our kids need. They don't need more tools. They need different kinds of learning that will keep them engaged. Um, so it doesn't matter if you use tool A, B, C, or D to push out low-level learning. It's all low-level learning and the kids check out, right? Mm. So this four shifts protocol, how is that able to help districts right now as they're struggling to sort of figure this out and do it better than what it has been done? Thanks for the question. Um, I've been working with a number of groups of educators over the summer, both last week and this week, I've been working with folks in Virginia. So for instance, uh, I'm wrapping up uh, a series of virtual workshops with secondary teachers this week, example. Uh, for example, in Virginia, there's maybe almost 75 to 100 of them uh, where we're using the protocol to redesign lessons together, right? And so the idea is that we can take existing lessons, whether they're face-to-face or virtual, um, and we can move them towards agency or authentic work or deeper learning. And we use those concrete, specific, think about some look-fors in the protocol to help with that. So today we did redesign triads. And so, you know, you might have a redesign triad that had uh, a high school English teacher and science teacher and math teacher in the same room, uh, you know, virtual breakout room. And they each brought a lesson that they maybe used in the spring. Like, here's something I do with my kids in the spring virtually. And we're going to use the protocol together to redesign it to make it richer and more robust. Um, and, you know, you have two other brainstorming buddies with you to do that work. And the lessons that they redesigned and the ideas that they came up with were phenomenal. Right. We had spent Monday and Tuesday getting familiar with the protocol and we spent today redesigning their own stuff. And they were like super jazzed as they left our work today because they could see the tangible changes in their instruction that they could make, even if it's remote, because now we're folding in deeper learning and it's more authentic and kids are going to be more engaged. And they were excited about that, right, because they had a tool that they could work with that was helpful. Are you able to share an example of one of those exciting lessons? Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll just riff here off the top of my head because um, I was kind of bouncing between breakout rooms. I had a teacher who was working on Greek mythology. It was an English class. And I think the original design was around students would go off and research a particular Greek god or goddess, and then they would come back and present to their classmates what they learned, right? And then her design team helped her shift that into not just like a, a research and recall assignment, um, into some kind of creative, like graphic novel, comic book type activity where students were then layering on, um, Greek gods and goddesses as sort of a comic book persona where they were, um, out there doing things. And then we filtered on, uh, another layer, which was sort of this idea of what if stealing sort of the Percy Jackson, the Greek gods have come to life in modern day idea. What if, you know, the Department of Natural Resources was working with Poseidon on water quality? What would that look like? Hmm. What if, um, <laughs> what if, um, uh, what's his name? Um, who's the satyr? Um, Dionysus, right? Um, th- that might be his Roman name, not his Greek name. But you know, like the god of wine, like what would he, what would it look like if he was involved with Alcoholics Anonymous for, uh, you know, alcoholism support? What would it look like if Mercury was involved in cybersecurity, right? And then as part of the graphic novel um, or comic book concept, that you would fold in sort of the powers of the Greek gods and goddesses into real world problem solving 
uh, in a graphic novel form. So that's kind of like where they got 20 minutes. Like there's some really interesting conversations happening um, that would be high engagement for students. They would still learn about the Greek gods and goddesses, but they go much further than that as they then integrated some other areas of learning. Your book, does that guide, you know, someone that wants to transform their learning, does that help guide them through that process as well? Or does it just show them, um, you know, sort of some things to shoot for? Uh, yeah. So we introduced the protocol. We actually redesign eight lessons in it pretty concretely. You can say, you know, you're in the elementary school and you have kids make a uh, decorate a pumpkin with a character from a book that you read in third grade. Right. And how can you make that richer, or more robust? And then Julie and I do the redesign work and she can say, oh, that's what we could do with it instead. Oh, nice. All right. Um, and we do it. We've got eight of those in the book. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it's meant to be helpful and concrete as possible. Yeah, that's great. I know. I know. I've found that incubation uh, time being a being a part of an incubator with other with other people just you know very very helpful to to rethink ideas the way they have been done. You gave a TED talk a couple years ago. In it, you provided stories about how students are using technology in transformative ways. That story of Martha and her becoming a food critic was perfect. It was motivational. It was inspirational. And I loved it. And similar to your blog post, it was relatable. And, and that's kind of what I was getting at with the profound aspect of it. As you think about, you know, Martha and, and those stories, do you have any recent sto- student stories uh, using technology in transformative ways? You know, what strikes me, Matt, is not any particular story. It's that we have kids in every community doing interesting work. Um, So the Martha story I shared was one that came to light because of the news, and she got a lot of, you know, national and international attention. Um, Most kids who are doing interesting work with technology aren't necessarily doing that. But, you know, I remember visiting a high school in North Carolina, and they gave me their students for 45 minutes in an auditorium. And so I was talking to students about, you know, some things and we talked about the power of Martha and, you know, kids doing interesting stuff at home with tech. And I gave them my cell number and I asked them to text me interesting things they were doing at home with technology. And, you know, they started texting me. And of course, high school kids, some of them were goofed around and were, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of Solve it. I didn't read those out loud, but you know, I started getting these messages like um, I raised twenty thousand dollars for charity last year through online campaigns. Uh, I started my own business. Um, I'm uh, doing coding, and I have my own uh, site on GitHub where I'm interacting with programmers. Uh, you know, I started my own shop on Etsy. Things like this, mm-hmm. right? Um, and as I started reading these things out loud, the teachers and administrators around the edges of the auditorium, just the jaws kept dropping because they didn't know any of it. And so it wasn't at you know, international scale, but it was still really interesting work that the kids were doing. And then, you know, we make these assumptions that the kids are just playing video games and goofing around and Snapchat or whatever. But they're also using technology in some really productive and fascinating ways as they join online communities as they find things that they're passionate about. And I think regardless of you know where we live, we can uncover those stories a little bit in our own local area. And we're going to be really surprised at some of the stuff that's happening with our youth. How have you seen teachers or schools um, leverage that sort of uh, work that students are doing on their own within the, within the school building? You know, I think the schools that inspire me the most, and, and I know that you've talked to some folks at some of these schools, 
um, are some of these project and inquiry-based schools where they find ways to fold kids' interests and passions into the learning work, right? So you're a big picture learning school, you're at high tech high, you're, you know, doing genius hours or passion projects at your local middle school or whatever, right? Like there's ways to allow kids to tap into their interests and passions that also connect them with outside communities. And it could be a local community, but it could also be an online or a global community. And so, you know, whatever kids care about, and kids really do care about stuff, right? Mm -hmm. It feels like one of our jobs as school systems should be to connect them to the relevant local, online, and global communities that also care about that so that they can learn with and from those people, so they can make contributions to those communities, so they can see how they can evolve and make a difference. And so some schools are set up on that model, right? So you're going to work on a PBL project for the next six weeks, right? What do you want it to be on? And then we'll help get there. And other schools are just starting to tiptoe into those areas. And then we've got whole networks like Big Picture Learning, where that's basically all they do, right? They just find ways to fold the learning into that kind of work. And they send kids out on internships and capstone projects. And, um, and kids are super jazzed when they get to connect the traditional academic work with things that they care about. And it feels like that's what we should be doing as educators in school systems. Let's say there's a traditional school, right? Not a big picture learning who has sort of, you know, flipped the model, but a traditional school that's trying to do things different. They're they're not going to be able to send out all of their students, um, you know, into internships. They're just not set up uh, for that yet. How, How could they fold in the learning in, into the school to increase agency for students? So I think you got a couple different options. One is the reason we made the forces protocol in the first place was to help with those kinds of transitions, right? Like mm-hmm. if you take a traditional teacher and you say, hey, we're going to run you through three days of PBL works, gold standard PBL project creation. And then the idea is that on the other end, you're going to make a three or four week gold standard PBL project and go. And, and like that's mm-hmm. a really big leap for yeah. a really traditional teacher. But the four shifts protocol is designed to say, let's take an existing lesson or unit and start tweaking it in smaller ways and smaller slices, right? And so it's not that you have to give your kids agency for the next three and a half weeks. Like, why don't you give kids agency for a couple of days, see how it goes, right? Reflect on that, learn from it, and then try it again, you know, another week and a half. And maybe you try it in a different area of student agency for like three days. And again, what you're doing is that by these smaller chunks, you're building your own capacity as a teacher, but you're also building your students' capacity to do the work as well. So that's one possibility, right, is that as we start to bridge you out of fairly traditional instruction and into some of these more robust modalities is that we have to do it in small chunks and the protocol can help with that. There's other structures that help as well, right? Like we can we can run you through PBL training, right? Many districts are doing that for the teachers who are ready for it. You can do structures like Genius Hour or Passion Projects, where maybe kids have hour and a half hour and a half a week, say, to work on an inquiry project of some kind. We can set up small capstone experiences um, or internship pilots, right, where we take a small section of kids and have them do something different. Um, and I think the place to play is probably with the kids who um, either really want it, right? they're looking for something different, or the kids who haven't been successful in the current model and need something different. Um, you know, you don't start with your high achieving kids who already know how to play the game of school because they think you're screwing up the process, right? Go to, go to the other end of the academic 
um, continuum and you find those kids who are looking around at the current schooling model and are really wondering if it's for them. And you say, you know what, let's give you something different and, and maybe we can get you back on track here in a different way. Um, and I think those are the kids you start with. You know, you find a few enterprising students, a few enterprising teachers, you give them a little space and buffer them from the rest of the system and you give them a chance to learn and grow. And I think that's how you do it. That's super helpful. I appreciate your big vision, but then also being willing to start small, right? Taking a lesson. Let's redesign that. Let's tweak that. Let's grow that in a different direction. And, and I think that's going to have so much more success, you know, across the board with, you know, tons of, of different types of teachers. I'm sorry, Matt. So I was just going to say one more thing. So my principal licensure students will tell you that I preach all the time about the value of small scale pilots, right? Because small scale pilots aren't risky right? You can go to, as if you're a teacher and you want to try something new. You don't want to go to your principal and say, I'm going to blow up my whole classroom for the next four weeks, right? But you can go to your principal and say, I want to try something new for like three days. And the principal's like, all right, go try that, right? And the same thing, the families aren't going to freak out about it. Like you're trying things in small scales and then learning from them and increasing your capacity. And so small scale pilots, whether by teachers or school buildings or school systems, are a great way to build our capacity for bigger stuff. Thanks for chiming in with that because that's so important and that's so helpful and it's motivating because we don't have to change the whole system. We can take one small thing and alter it, play around with it, kind of have fun with a smile on our face. We don't have to have like this look of dread, you know? Right, right. Scott, I could talk to you all day, but uh, we got to bring this conversation to an end. As we conclude, who do you want to give a shout out to? Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to all the awesome educators in Virginia that I've been working with for the last two weeks. I've been really impressed with the conversations that we've been having. They have a new statewide profile of a graduate that's focused on the five C's, um, the fifth one being citizenship. And so as everybody tries to figure out how to transform learning experiences, I've been really impressed with the educators and school leaders that I've been working with that are diving into that work. And I'm also going to give a shout out to the uh, networks of schools that have gone full-blown PBL or inquiry, places like Big Picture Learning um, and New Tech Network and High Tech High and so on. You know, we've got maybe a thousand or so schools across the United States that are diving deep in this area and the whole school PBL and inquiry models. And every time I visit one of those schools, I just come away so energized about the possibility of youth to do amazing work and the possibility of school to be something different for them. So that's where my shout outs go. Great. Yeah. I just had a conversation with Big Picture Learning the other night and it was so cool because we were talking to one of the directors, but she didn't want to talk to us. Um, she brought a student on that graduated and just had the student uh, share their experiences. And they're sort of, this student graduated, you know, a couple of years ago, but they're sort of still living out that uh, big picture learning and authentic learning. Like, let's get in, let's intern, let's do this together and let's keep the learning moving. So yeah. thanks for giving them a shout out. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Matt, it's really hard to visit one of those schools and not walk away wishing your kid was in one. It's time for the final word. Scott, what would you like to say to close out this podcast? Uh, I would like to say thank you, first of all, for the opportunity and to help people recognize that um, systems change slowly, right? And that we don't just turn school K-12 education on its head, you know, in a week or two or a year or two. This is long-term sustained work, but we can do it in small slices um, and build toward it. So what we have to have is we have to have sort of this internal commitment to the long-term work, right? This is not a fad. Deeper learning is not something that's going to go away in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, deeper learning 
represents a, a set of competencies and skills that our students need from us that go far beyond what we've given them in the past. And so as somebody who works a lot with school leaders and school systems, in addition to coaches and classroom teachers, we have to roll up our sleeves and be very intentional and purposeful about the long-term work and how to structure that so that it doesn't just become something that fades away in a couple of years and we end up doing our kids a disservice for the rest of their lives. Scott, this has been a powerful conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. I appreciate all the work that you have done, the work that you are doing, and spending some time with us talking about it today. To those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Diving Deep EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire.